one, would you please open your Bibles or open your scripture journals to 1 Peter chapter 1. I began last week reading uh, verses 3 through 12, which I'm going to do so actually again this morning just to help us continue in the thought process of Peter and to help give us context for what we're reading. I'll read out of the ESV, and if you don't have the ESV, that's okay, because we'll put it up on the monitor for you, and you can follow along. So 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, and may I just remind us that this is the word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Can I say that again? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Lord, we submit our hearts, our mind, our will, our bodies to you this morning Father, we continue to offer all that we are as an act of worship unto you. And Father, that as we seek to glorify you, we ask that you would glorify yourself in us. Lord, to stretch us, to conform us into your likeness, Lord, by the power of your word. Father, I thank you that your word is alive and active. I thank you, Lord God, that by your spirit it comes to life in our hearts and our minds. I thank you, Lord, that this is your work and your work alone. Lord, it is not on the basis of our intellect, our ability to perceive how well we understand the Greek text, how well we understand anything, Father, apart from just seeking you with faith. And so we come now with faith to receive this word, and we thank you, Lord, in your name, amen. So can I just say, brothers and sisters, this morning that I have absolutely fantastic news for you all. I have probably one of the best announcements that you might hear all week and that is this, that suffering is the way of God. How glad are you to hear that statement? That suffering is the way of God. I don't know how else to put it for you this morning, but this text is so clear, and as I intend to look at this morning, 
that it is in fact God's way to use trials, to use adversity in the life of the believer to bring something about that could never be brought about in any other way. And we're going to look and, and we're going to endeavor to understand why that is and what the response is from us as believers in the face of adversity. As I speak this morning, can I just ask for you all to give thought into your own life right now, which will probably literally take 10 seconds, to a trial that you currently face, to adversity that you might face. And as I speak this morning and as the Lord speaks to us through his word, allow him to challenge your view of that adversity in this time in your life. It was uh, August of 2017. Many of you probably remember, that was only a few years ago, and it was um, North America for the first time in, I think it was almost 35 years, and maybe it was 35 years. It was, it was more than 35 years, 36. North America for the first time was going to be able to see a total eclipse of the heart. A total eclipse over here. It was on the West Coast, right? Was it all of North America or was it just the West Coast? I don't, it doesn't matter. But you guys remember that, right? And everywhere, people were going crazy because, you know, it had happened in February of 1979. Before, a month before I was born was the last time a total eclipse was, be, was able to be seen in North America. And so people were going like crazy. They were driving. Our neighbors drove over 24 hours in traffic just to get up towards the Oregon border where there was supposed to be this kind of optimum viewing where you could see it for the longest and the brightest and the most open or whatever it was. I mean, people were going crazy. And I don't know if you remember, but everywhere you went just in the weeks leading up to it, they were selling those goggles. Yeah. I mean, those, you know, those little disposable goggles that were supposed to allow you to be able to see. And obviously we know that, that the, the issue is that you can't stare at, a, at an eclipse without really potentially causing damage because of the intense ultraviolet rays that are released from that. And did you know that actually squinting makes it worse? I read that recently, that squinting actually makes it worse. And someone here knows why that is. We can talk to Cam afterwards. I'll tell you all about it. Um, and so, but people were going and they were looking for these goggles and they looked like this. And, and I, I worked at the plumbing company at the time and it was the big thing. We all stood out in front. We were looking like a bunch of dopes staring up at the sky with these goggles on. But the thing was is that the goggles allowed for us to look at this event and perceive clearly without subjecting ourselves to the harm of what could potentially be. And as I was thinking about First Peter, and much of what I said last week, as I was thinking about verses 1 through 5, I was thinking, you know, 1 through 5 is Peter's eclipse lenses. What he's doing is he's calling the church to put on these lenses, these, this view of which they're able to perceive the circumstances that surround them without necessarily being subjected to the adverse effects that come when we just see trial as something that we want to circumvent in our life. And so I was just thinking, man, that's an interesting thought that Peter's going, listen, everything that I want to say to you is reliant upon you putting this lens on. If you don't put this lens on, you're not going to be able to see clearly what is taking place around you. And even worse is you might be harmed. Harm may come to your heart or to your mind or, God forbid, even to your physical body should you not understand what it is that I am working about. And that lens, that lens that Peter presents to us is the lens of the eternal purposes and the promises of God. 
And do not tune out when I say that, please. We speak so often about God's eternal purpose. That lens is the eternal purpose of God. It's what God has since the beginning of all things and on through the end of all time, which there will be no end, through eternity future, what God has always intended to come about. In his sovereign and providential plan, we find ourselves today, you find yourself in this moment in the middle of fill-in-the-blank type of trial or adversity. God has intended it. If we see it as such, we reap the benefits of it. I was thinking about this too. This, it's, it's this ability for us. The reality is, is Scripture gives us the ability to see beyond the present into the future. Christianity doesn't get enough credit for the psychic powers that it actually holds. The Word of God is insight into the future. The Word of God is the revelation of God's will for your life and how He intends to bring it about in many ways. That's remarkable. That's absolutely remarkable. It's the eternal purpose revealed through the word of God. So in 1 Peter verses 1 through 5, Peter's describing this lens of the new identity of Christians in Jesus Christ and no longer of the world. And this is what I spoke on last week. The result of which, the result of this new identity, this result of not being within the world, brings with it a natural schism between the kingdom of God and between the kingdom of this earth or the kingdom of Satan. There's a schism that automatically comes because we are an otherly people. We are oriented differently. We are made new. We are different, etc., etc. And I share this with you, Jesus' words in John chapter 17. He says that the world has hated them. The world has hated them. The world hates the people of God because why? Because they're not of the world. Because they're not like them. We're not like the others. We don't pursue nor uphold, nor do we speak of what the world speaks of. But, and this is the hope for the Christian, within the schism, it admits the hatred of the world, there is a joy that is for us. There's a hope that is for us. Because belonging to Christ, as Peter tells us in the first five verses, brings a certainty, church. Belonging to Jesus Christ brings a certainty of both hope and inheritance. Brings a certainty of what will be and a present day hope. And it brings a certainty to our hearts of what is ours, the blessing the, the, the fruitfulness, the culmination of this life in Christ Jesus, right? Okay, that was last week. But now in verse 6, now in verse 6, dun, 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 Peter begins to transition, and he, he begins to point to, in a sense, the why of our what, why all of this is so important for us to know and for us to walk in. Why must we today, in 21st century West Coast USA, need to understand and need to live in the reality of this new life and of this new living hope that we have? And so Peter, in verse 6, transitions and he shifts away from this kind of this discussion or this discourse of elation, right? There's all this joy, the blessed be the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he shifts 
from elation almost to just kind of reality of experience now. Again, having helped, hopefully, the readers place the right lenses upon which they can view through. And with four words, Peter presents to every Christ follower, both that was and both that will be, that has ever taken up the mantle of following Christ Jesus, the single response and the single heart posture that we are to take up in the face of adversity. Four words, in this you rejoice. Ah, and we're hit square between the eyes. In this you rejoice. And I have to be honest with you, my tendency was want to read that in light of though he's speaking of verses one through five. Because I do rejoice in the living hope. I do rejoice in the, in the faith that is guarding me and preserving me, etc. But that's not what Peter is saying. Yes, we rejoice in those things, but Peter is saying, no, you rejoice in your adversity. You rejoice in your trial. Doggone it. Do you know what rejoice means? Rejoice. Take exceeding delight in your adversity. Listen, we laugh. This is the scripture. This is the truth of God for us this morning. Take exceeding delight in your adversity. Exult with great jubilation in your trial this morning. Be very pleased with the troubles that you are faced with. Experience feelings of great happiness that you are suffering grief due to the troubles that you face today. I was thinking, man, people could read this and they might think, what, is Peter like a masochist? Is this like the early flagellation of like, you know, self-inflicted pain? Well, obviously not. But it's like, what do we do about uh, uh, like James 1.1? Count it all joy. What do we do with Paul in Romans when he says rejoice in your sufferings in Romans 5? And of course, what do we do with the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 when he says rejoice and be glad when others revile and persecute and utter evil against you? This is the heart posture. This is the approach that we as believers take up. There's a theology of suffering that Scripture clearly teaches, that Jesus himself so clearly taught, that I believe somehow the church has managed to shirk off in these modern days. And I would say that it's probably likely, at least in part, to the ease of life and to the pursuit of comfort that we have in this modern America that it's somehow this, this, this ease to which we live has allowed for us the opportunity at times to our detriment to circumvent what God is doing because we're looking for the quick way out. We're looking for the easy way out. Very little of our modern life requires that we suffer. And I think when we do suffer, it's like, how do I get through this quickly? How do I get past this? How, do I get, how can I get over this? Within the teachings of the Bible, brothers and sisters, it's a foregone conclusion that Christ followers would suffer and face adversity and troubles. It's not, should you? It's that you will. It is a foregone conclusion. And I think that this is where we need to adjust this morning in our belief that says that suffering is to be avoided, that says that Suffering is just a spiritual attack upon our life or that suffering is somehow not within the will of God. This is, I get it, this is not 
like a, a, a teaching this morning that's going to bring people in droves through this door. But I believe that this is to be taught for the sake of the church that she would be prepared, that she would be able to be who she's called to be, that you would be able to be who you are, and thus we as the church could stand in rightness and in truth and to be prepared, right? We have to change what we think. It's not all just spiritual warfare, brothers and sisters. It's the way of God at times for our life. And we have a supreme example of this in the person of Jesus Christ himself. So if you're questioning whether it really is, look at the life of Jesus. Look at what he had to walk through and how he modeled so willingly, taking upon himself the most difficult road out of obedience, suffering gladly, who for, as Hebrews says what? The joy that was set before him. The joy. Here's the equation again. Joy and suffering, suffering and joy. It was the joy for Jesus to suffer because of the promise that he saw on the other side. Brothers and sisters, it's no different for us this morning. It is our joy to face trials because of the promise that awaits us on the other side. For us, for the church, it's important for us to see the correlation that the suffering which Peter speaks of here in chapter one isn't necessarily just the result of defiance per se. In other words, it's not because we as the church decide to start making radical stances on minor things and we bring it upon ourselves. That's not really what here what Peter's talking about. Again, what Peter is talking about is like the life of Jesus Christ, in the Christian life, this adversity is a result of the foreign nature of God's people who are living, again, in a counter-cultural kingdom, in a counter-cultural value and set of ideals. And so because of this orientation, in Peter's mind, Suffering is inevitable. It's not just simply possible. When we as Christians, when we as the church oppose error or lies that are cloaked as truth, right? Lots of those out there. When we as the church stand for what is true and and call out lies that are cloaked as truth, the result is trial. The result is adversity which should remind us, church, that we are hated, but more importantly, we are his. Adversity is a reminder that we are otherly, but we are Christ's. So when you stand for truth in your social spheres or object to lies that your teachers or your professors or your employers say is truth, stand fast, church because you're living as God intended you to live. Who's familiar, are any any of you familiar with the name James Coates? You guys know James Coates? James Coates is a Canadian pastor. Have you heard about him in Alberta? Who was imprisoned, placed in jail for over 35 days because he had violated the Canadian... Um, I can't remember what it's called, the Health Mandate Act for COVID, by doing exactly what we're doing this morning, by calling his church to worship in person, by standing and saying, these are the reasons why, not just like thumbing his nose at the government, 
but standing and saying, this is the conviction that we hold within Scripture. This is why we're doing what we're doing. And the Canadian government went, nope. And it was just literally until the end of March that he was sitting in jail. He's out now, now he faces trial, and he's going to have further persecution that comes. Brothers and sisters, we've got to get this ingrained into our mentality. And I'm not saying that's going to happen to us, but we don't know. We don't know what will happen. We don't know what we face as we stand for what is true, right? You don't know what you're, regardless of whether you see it as a a small moment of standing or something significant, you know, large that you know, we just, we don't know what is going to face us in this life. So we need to develop this truth for our hearts more clearly. We need to hold it more personally so that we too can stand with a resilience like James when we're faced with opposition. Psalm 124 says this, I was just meditating and worshiping to that, this scripture this week in light of what I was going to teach this morning. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. And I'm telling you, the, the word that the Lord gave me this week for this message was the word immovable. That we as the church are to be immovable, unwavering, unrelenting, unyielding, uncompromising, un-whatever you want to throw in there, unbending, that we would be immovable. And I think, again, it's important that when I say we, we cannot depersonalize the church. We is we. It begins with you being unyielding in your life, with you being immovable, with you being unyielding. And us together, like this morning, where I stand or someone else stands and the Lord encourages us to say, stand fast, stand firm, do not waver. Is this okay? It's, it's heavy, but it's present. It's a, it's a cogent word. Charles Spurgeon says this, do not consider the adverse circumstances. That's not quoted right. He didn't quote it that way. It was better English. Do not consider the adverse circumstances a proof that you have missed your road. For they may even be evidence that you are in the good old way since the path of believers is seldom without trial. See your trials as a confirmation that you are on the right path. The way is narrow. The way is narrow, and it is wrought with difficulty. So the question then becomes this morning, and this is what I want to answer in the time that's remaining, is why must we suffer? All right, Matt, you made your point. Suffering is God's way. Why? Convince me. Tell me. Teach me. Encourage me. So Peter addresses this by pointing out three profound understandings that are formed in and through suffering. And the first is this that suffering is temporary and Christ is eternal. It might sound patronizing, but it is truth. Suffering is temporary. Christ is eternal. And Peter says this in verse six, rejoice though now for a little while you have been grieved by various trials. Like any trial, we strive to see beyond 
the present to something better that lies ahead. For the Christian, we hold firmly to the hope that Jesus' return brings more than just an end to suffering, but a fulfillment of the promised blessing for our life. We hold to this reality that yes, suffering will end one day, but something even greater is that when it does, we receive the crown of life. We receive the eternal weight of glory. We receive the blessing that has been promised for us. Third century early church leader, Origen of Alexandria, spent two years in perpetual torture under the hand of Decius. Two years in perpetual torture in an effort to force him to publicly renounce his faith, which he never did. An early church historian who lived at the same time, his name is Eusebius, his records are still accessible and, and widely regarded to this day. He says this about Origen's torture, that he suffered bonds and bodily tortures and torments under the iron collar and in the dungeon, and how for many days with his feet stretched four spaces in the stocks, he bore patiently the threats of fire and whatever other things were inflicted by his enemies. And how his sufferings terminated as his judge strove eagerly with all his might not to end his life. And what words he left after these things, full of comfort to those needing aid. Absolutely remarkable. Here is a man who spent two years, someone keeping him just barely alive, that he would renounce the faith. And it's absolutely crazy when Paul would say in light of this, but these are the words that men like Origen held to in those moments in Romans 8, 18, that I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Church, the, the, the beauty and the grandeur of the eternal only increases as the darkness inches closer and closer and closer, if we hold this perspective and this understanding true and in heart, that what awaits, that what is on the other side far supersedes anything that we would endure at this moment, the brightness of the eternal only gets greater. And as we know, the darkness inches in even to this day closer around us. Jesus knew this. Jesus modeled this. He spoke of it, not just on the basis of his own perfect life, but for those who would come after him following in the ways of this path, which is narrow and difficult, but this path results in glory. Peter knew it too. Paul knew it as well. Paul would describe the sufferings of this present day so insignificant against the backdrop of the eternal that he would call them what? Light and momentary. Light and momentary is how Peter or is how Paul understood. It's how Paul understood what was transpiring in his life. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Troubles in this life last only for a little while. They're fleeting and they're destined to end, but our hope in Christ Jesus is eternal because he is forever alive. Now, I was reminded again about the words of Jesus in Matthew where he says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear the one who kills both the body and the soul. 
In other words, fear God. Don't fear man. Fear God. Brothers and sisters, I'm not trying to patronize us. I'm trying to build our faith, myself included. I'm trying to encourage us to be as God has called us to be. I hope this is okay. And it's not all like this in 1 Peter. It's going to get happier. (laughs) But this is the undergirding of it, so deal with it. Okay? You have to suffer through this this morning because God is doing something in your heart. Okay? (laughs) That's actually true. That's ironically true. (laughs) Secondly, God purposes that we must suffer because suffering invigorates faith. So the first thing is that suffering is temporary. The first understanding and truth that we see is that suffering is temporary, but of course we know that Christ is eternal. Secondly, that suffering invigorates faith. Look at Psalm 43. Would you please, would you turn to Psalm 43? I don't have this up in the keynote. I just thought of this this morning as I was um, was praying and preparing my heart to teach. Psalm 43 came and it's, It's because I think I'm most familiar with this psalm because of a song that I really love that's just so beautifully written. But it says this, Psalm 43, verse 1, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? And then the psalmist resolves in his heart, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God who is what? My exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O my God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil? And just like that again, he answers, Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Brothers and sisters, this is what it means to encourage yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the face of whatever it is that we face, to remember that when things press in, that when things surround me, that we go, we ascend the hill of God, our exceeding joy. That we are brought into And we quickly can enter into the presence of God, into the comfort of God, into the joy of daughtership, daughterhood, daughtership, sonship, daughterhood. We'll go with that. That you can can quickly enter into a place of belonging as God's child. It's beautiful. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And what a picture Psalm 43 is of just this very thing of their faith being invigorated by the circumstances that surrounded him at the moment. So suffering invigorates our faith. It gives life to our faith by placing in front of us an object in view which we can then apply our faith towards. It actually activates our faith because it requires us to deal with what is in front of us. Will you have faith or will you try to go around the mountain? And guess what? You could spend 40 years going around the mountain if you so choose. I think we all can probably look at moments in our life of adversity and we realize that we've stayed in places because we've circled the mountain unwilling in our own hearts to bend and to yield in obedience to God. 
In other words, it can be self-inflicted sometimes just because we don't see rightly what God is desiring to do in us. Suffering invigorates our faith, requires us to, to flex that faith muscle. The analogy that Peter is going to use is to show this comparison of faith to one of the most valuable and precious items on earth, and that's gold. And that's what Peter then moves into in, in, in this chapter one here in verses seven and seven. In verses seven, he moves into this analogy of how faith and gold have a likeness in the process. And that the, the precious metal, like, like gold, our faith is refined and it's purged of its impurities through the trials of fire, through the fires of trial. That through the adversity, our faith is purified as God works it out in us. But unlike the gold, which Peter goes on to say, unlike gold that will be burnt up one day, in the renewing fire of Christ, when he returns, our faith will continue. So he likens it to, at the, at the time, whatever fill in the blank is, whatever the most precious thing you can think of on this earth, an object, if you will, your faith is greater than that. But like that metal, it must go through the forges of God in order for him to bring us into conformity to mend us and to, to make us well and to whole. Our joy and our suffering comes from this truth that suffering and trial tests our faith. It proves our faith is genuine. That's our joy. When we're tested and when we're under trial and we see our faith come alive or we engage with our faith, what a joy and what a hope that is. It proves to us that it is real, that it's alive, that it's pure, it's authentic. There's no counterfeit faith, church, in adversity. No counterfeit faith can endure the fires of adversity. Rather, what's dross, what's impurity, what's waste is burned away until what remains is pure. I was thinking this, this trouble, this trial, that alivens our faith. I was thinking of the story of Abraham when it says in Hebrews that it was by faith that Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac and who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son is what Hebrews 11 says. That it was by faith that as he faced this trial, having been the one that received the promise, and what do we know that Genesis says where Abraham says to Isaac in Genesis, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. Abraham knew even in the face of that moment where God was testing his belief in his very word in that moment. Would he believe in my promise? Church, will you believe in the promise of God today? Will you believe? knowing that God will provide for you, that God has provided for you the burnt offering as he did to Abraham, the way out, the way through. It was by faith that God was testing Abraham. May the Lord burn away that which is impure. May he burn it away, producing 
that which remains. That's James 1.1. Count it all joy. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. He doesn't even say it's going to produce something good. He says, no, this is what it produces. Look for it. It produces steadfastness. And then he says, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And what's more, as Paul would say in Romans 5, more than that, more than that, James, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and that endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope doesn't put to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And brothers and sisters, as Paul would say in Ephesians, the Holy Spirit is the deposit and the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Do you understand? Can you, did I say that too quick? Did you see that the, the progression of logic in Paul's mind that ultimately just go from point A to point B here that it is suffering that we rejoice in because the Holy Spirit in the suffering awakens and alives us and reminds us that he is the deposit of what will one day be. I think we could probably go so far as to say that suffering cannot prevent joy in our life, but rather it gives meaning to the joy itself. Joy is often better known in the face of trouble's retreat. When trouble goes, there joy really comes into view for our life. We could probably also say that, that suffering should not prevent faith. Rather, it should probably prove it. Suffering should prove our faith. John Calvin says this, that you must submit to supreme suffering in order to discover the completion of joy. Joy is greatest known, is known greatest in the face of suffering. And thirdly, suffering brings glory to Jesus. And we probably all knew this and expected this, but it's important to remind our hearts because this is what Peter says here, that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I think we like to think that trials give us the right to lay claim to blessing. In other words, I've earned this. I deserve this, right? Again, I, that's a modern notion that we have to expel from our thinking. We haven't earned anything. We don't deserve anything other than what? Death. There's a good, we'll teach on that next week. Really build this church. You deserve death and you're going to suffer. <laughs> Amen. But this is true. We don't earn glory for suffering. We receive glory for participating in Christ's suffering. It's quite a difference. It's quite a change of perspective. Paul says this in Philippians 1.29, and I'm going to land quickly. It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict. Church, if we endure for him, then the results of our endurance should also be for him. If he's the object for which we endure, may also be what comes of it 
be for him as well, before his glory for his sake. Not only is it for what we receive, the blessing that's promised to us for participating in the suffering of Christ Jesus, but the joy and the comfort in our affliction also benefits others. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. So in other words, God is a God of comfort who comforts us in affliction so that we may come alongside and say to each other, there, there, remember God is faithful and comfort those with the same comfort that we have received. God's Praise is multiplied when we suffer with joy and then in turn comfort those who also suffer. He receives the glory in us. He receives the glory in others. And we're just a big bunch of suffering, joyful people gathering every Sunday to rejoice in our sufferings with each other and to comfort one another in our, faith, in our trials and adversity. Honestly, this is a big part of what I'm hoping to do in these hub gatherings, not to like huddle and suffer, but it's to encourage each other in this type of truth, to hear what are the trials that you're facing and how is God bigger than those trials? How can I encourage you in what is true? How can I pray for you and have faith to see God move a mountain on your behalf and so see you conformed into God's likeness? This is what I hope for in these hubs. So may we be immovable, church, keeping our eyes set on the reality that suffering is temporary, Christ is eternal, that suffering enlivens our faith and invigorates our faith, it stirs our faith into action, and that ultimately and most importantly that our suffering brings glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's be an immovable church. Are you okay with that? Do you want to be immovable in your life? Let's start there. Let's be immovable in our lives. And then together, we are an immovable church for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what's your trial? And are you trying to get around it? Because let the Lord show you what he wants to do. Let your faith be awakened to the glory of his name. Amen? Would you stand with me, please?